0: You're listening to the sample space podcast from the department of statistical science at university college london my name is brio Lehman, and today it's my great pleasure to be talking to professor chris holmes from the university of oxford welcome chris hi pleasure to be here. here is so um full disclosure for the listeners uh before i joined the department here at the start of the year chris was in fact my my boss at oxford uh and actually i still have the pleasure of working with chris as part of a um covid statistical modeling lab that uh chris heads up Um, which I'm hoping we'll have the time to talk about later. Despite this conflict of interest, however, I'll do do my best to grill Chris with some hard-hitting questions. (laughs) Um, The main reason we're here today, though, is to talk about the fantastic seminar that Chris gave to the department uh, about a month ago on Bayesian predictive inference. If you missed it, you can find a recording of the seminar uh, on our YouTube channel. Before we get going on that, though, I want to address an important issue. If you don't know what uh, Chris Holmes uh, looks like and you search for him on on Wikipedia, you'll be confronted with a a heavily tattooed gentleman holding uh, an electric guitar and generally looking pretty gnarly. So so Chris, do you in fact moonlight as the lead guitarist of the heavy metal band Wasp?
1: No, unfortunately not. Life
0: oh, okay. might be more exciting. <laughs> That's a shame. Uh, so you're in fact the professor of biostats uh, at Oxford and um, you also lead the the health programme at the Alan Turing Institute and and while well, the list goes on but um, if you hadn't been a statistician uh, what would you have been?
1: Yeah it's a good question. I don't quite know. I mean outside of academia um, I'd say either something in the creative industries that's what i'd like to think i would do maybe uh maybe you know a heavy metal rock band <laughs>
0: you'd have to with but... a pseudonym so you don't clash <laughs> with uh the, the, the other chris holmes
1: <laughs> exactly uh maybe a teacher actually hey, i right, think yeah. always in the public sector definitely i think that would be a
0: uh something okay. sounds good i mean um but you you are, in fact, a, a statistician. And, and could you tell us a bit about your kind of academic journey to, to where you are today?
1: Yeah, um, so I guess of kind of interest is I was working in industry after I did an MSc in artificial intelligence back in the kind of the the first wave or the second wave of when it was super exciting and there were expert systems and You know, lots of grand challenges. And so I did a I did a master's in in kind of in both natural and artificial intelligence. And that just got me super interested in this idea of kind of learning from data. And then I I worked in industry in scientific computing Mm. in a small software house uh, just outside Bristol that wrote the control systems for the satellite for the European Space Programme and they also wrote um these scada supervisory control and data acquisition systems for major utilities and and i was working on kind of updating algorithms you know in terms of nowcasting and and that just got me interested in bayesian inference actually because it's a very natural framework to update as new information becomes available and and from that i i then just got more and more interested in the topic so i went to do my phd at imperial college london um uh, i think i was 28 or maybe 29 mm. when i started my phd and i just loved it i never looked back
0: um, who was that with
1: uh, so it was with uh Banny malik who was my first supervisor but he left after my uh, hopefully not due to me uh, but he left kind of nine months uh, or six or seven months into my my phd but i was pretty self-sufficient being a, the age I was, and also the fact that I'd been learning, you know, uh, working in industry. So I kind of charted my my course uh, from there. But it was a fantastic environment at that time. There was people like Adrian Smith was in the group and Dave Stevens, who's now at McGill, Stephen Walker, uh, and people, and I've kept in touch with them. and And Adrian is now, he was my, he went on to be my postdoctoral supervisor. Mm. Because after finishing my PhD at Imperial, I stayed on as a postdoc and Adrian was my supervisor and he's now my boss at the Alan Turing Institute uh, again. So things go around. So I stayed at Imperial, did my lectureship and then moved to Oxford 17 uh, years ago. It was Peter Donnelly who really uh, kind of instigated that move.
0: So, uh, did you know that um, Adrian Smith is also the uh, lead guitarist of Iron Maiden? Uh...
1: <laughs> oh there's death. I can see there's a theme. What are the
0: chances of that? We should. <laughs> I, actually, I googled it earlier. There, there's a. I googled Adrian Smith, Chris Holmes, and there's actually a, pi- a picture of the two guitarists uh, out there, yeah. which I feel yeah, we, should, I we, should, we should recreate with the. Statisticians uh, Adrian Smith and Chris Holmes. <laughs> um, so you mentioned you mentioned Stephen Walker, who's one of the the co-authors uh, on the martingale posterior paper. This uh, this paper behind the the seminar that you gave at at UCL um, about a month ago. Could you talk us through you know the main ideas uh, around the paper, kind of how it came about?
1: Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I've been a long term kind of collaborator and friend uh, with Stephen. Uh, So the background to the Martingale posterior paper and predictive inference was we'd been working, Stephen and myself and, and students have been working on this idea of general, generalized Bayesian updating, which allows one to replace the likelihood function with a kind of a loss function. Uh, targeting a particular parameter of interest. And through that, we got very interested in the Bayesian bootstrap. So originally as a way to just kind of calibrate uh, general Bayesian updating, because the problem as soon as you if you if you move away from a likelihood function, you don't have you don't know you don't know how much to update. I've got this new piece of information. It's a datum. And what Bayes' theorem tells you, which which is beautiful, is exactly how much information is contained in this new datum relative to what you've got. And that's the coherency property of having a joint probabilistic structure. Now, if you forsake that, I get a new datum, you know, how much information does that new datum carry relative to what I already know? And you don't have that as if you kind of go outside of, kind of full probability modeling. And so we were thinking carefully about how to do calibration and the Bayesian bootstrap had this wonderful kind of, was a wonderful tool for us because it allowed us to do these kind of randomized loss functions. We were exploring actually hierarchical Bayesian bootstraps at the time and we were struggling a bit, you know, with this randomized weight Viewpoint, which is I think most people see the Bayesian bootstrap as a randomised weight, and it was really when we sat back a little a little bit and looked at the polyarene representation of the Bayesian bootstrap, and it's unfortunate that that's not more better known because suddenly this thing which looks rather odd about these randomised weights, these Dirichlet uniform Dirichlet kind of weights, becomes really intuitive, which is. The basin's bootstrap has a urn reinforced urn representation, which is you start off with the empirical CDF, empirical cumulative distribution function, and you just predict a new point and you just add it back into the pot uh, to update. And then you predict another point and you add it back into the pot or the urn to update. And once, and in the limit, you get back the randomized weights. Once we were there, we were almost to the martingale posterior which was hold on a second there's this kind of interesting Bayesian approach which starts off with a predictive like the empirical CDF and just updates and you run that through to a limit and you get something really interesting Mm -hmm. because in the limit once I've got near infinite number of datums or data that have been drawn from the urn you can calculate any statistic and and that's the kind of generality of the bootstrap you just any target Of interest, you can just bootstrap it. You don't need a full probabilistic model. And I guess the breakthrough came as well from Stephen, who noted this connection between Doob's paper on the theory of the application of martingales and the conventional Bayesian approach, which says, you know, what Doob shows is this thing that we were looking at at the bootstrap, which is you start off with a predictive model given your data, you kind of make a prediction and then you put that back into the pot and you update and you put that back into the pot, has a precise Bayesian representation in, for conventional inference. And then we were away.
0: It's a, it's a fascinating background, right? Because it, draw, it draws from a ver- variety of fundamental papers over the course of like, you know, the last kind of almost 100 years, I guess, going back to kind of, yeah, like you say, do, but I think there's some important ideas from Di uh, in there as well and so it's it's interesting how it kind of brings together these different uh, ideas that played kind of independently have played very important roles in kind of Bayesian statistics and this is a nice way that really kind of brings them together. What, what do you see are the kind of challenges ahead? Are there any kind of you know outstanding problems around the Martingale Posterior uh, paper that you'd uh, kind of keen to explore a bit further?
1: Yeah, I mean, at the heart of that paper is is this idea that you forsake the kind of the safety of Bayesian inference, which gives you, you know, a lot of inbuilt coherency. So as soon as you go down, if you kind of set out a Bayesian model with a likelihood and a prior, you're really protected at that point because you know that you're going to be coherent. You know that the update is going to be valid and your predictive inferences are internally coherent. When you Mm. step out of that, I mean, again, at the heart of the martingale posterior is, well, there's a couple of things which are unusual from Bayesians. First of all, you build your model, given all available information at the time of modeling. And so that includes the data that you've got, which means you don't start off with a prior and then you're locked into that model forever. Now, of course, you know, Bayesians are quite rightly and I would argue that, you know, you go through careful model criticism, but the kind of for the martingale posterior predictive inference, you start from the current data point and you just need to build a predictive and an update and then keep running that forward. So you keep simulating and then conditioning on the output of the simulation feedback. So it's this recursive feedback into the model. What that means is that there's two things. First of all, you need to ensure that if I build, if I adopt a predictive model, that you don't somehow add information artificially as you go forward. And that's the Martingale condition. Essentially, it says that, you know, you shouldn't be able to kind of create information out of nothing. Um, So that's the Martingale condition. So checking that you've got a Martingale condition on your predictive is 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 important and that has to be done at the moment on a case-by-case basis the second thing is this how much information is in the update this problem that I, I i've kind of alluded to that we were tackling right at the beginning which is if i've got a predictive model and you don't you know you want to kind of go outside of bays because that's why you might want to use this approach you know if i give you a new datum how should that adjust your beliefs and so that's a, again a kind of I'd say a, a generic like an, a generic challenge
0: so around, around how to kind of calibrate the the predict yeah. updates
1: yeah yeah so exactly so how much should this new datum that you've simulated from the model how much should that move you or change your or
0: change your beliefs yeah so it's, it's a it's a challenging problem I know, I know I know lots of people are thinking about that at least there have been lots of people thinking about that in terms of the generalized Bayesian updating right in terms of how mm. to I guess it's a similar problem for the for the martingale posterior i suppose you kind of just touched on it but there's there's an interesting distinction between kind of statistical inference based on predictive distributions as in the the martingale posterior uh, as opposed to i guess the more kind of traditional approach which is to to focus on like the data generating process i suppose i mean you you kind of already touched on it but i wonder if, if if you see that there's any particular you know like applications or, or fields where you feel like one is more appropriate than the other?
1: I mean, again, the kind of wonderful thing with Bayesian inference is it separates, both a strength and a weakness, that it separates out the modeling part from the decision analysis. And so uh, uh, what that means is that if I'm taking a fully Bayesian approach, I build my probabilistic model. And then formally, what what questions you want to ask of that model uh, immaterial yeah any question can be asked of that model and so you just model you know nature's generating process and off you go that's great because it means that you can ask multiple questions of, of models and you can ask repeated questions of the models and you kind of retain coherency uh, because you've got this joint probabilistic structure however the the cons against that or or some of the kind of issues with that which people have highlighted before? People like Vatnik in statistical learning theory says like Bayesians solve a more general problem. You know, if I'm interested in the median, say, of a population, non-Bayesian, you can just target that. I just write down a loss function or an estimator, mm-hmm. estimating an equation, and I solve the problem that's been tar- that I've been posed with. Whereas the Bayesians have to solve a much more general problem. We need a full generative process, yeah, for the data. And from the outside, you say, "Well, hold on. What, why are you, you know, why are you kind of solving a more general problem? All I want to know is what's the, what's an estimate of the median, uh, say." Mm. Um, now, the predictive approach is quite nice because the starting point from the prediction is given everything we know now. What's the missing information that you need to answer the question? And so again, it takes a targeted approach. And if you say to me, "Look, parts of the data," Parts of the aspect of the data are not of interest to answering the question. I just have to build a predictive model for the missing information needed. And then you effectively impute the missing information. So it's a much more kind of targeted uh, approach uh, to inference. And that's where I would
0: see it's probably the big contrast strengths and weaknesses. That's very interesting. Um, I'm going to make a, a segue now. It's, it's, uh, I think just over two years to the day that the UK uh, uh, went into the first first lockdown, and I know Chris, you've been you've been kind of heavily involved with a number of initiatives supporting the the kind of government's response to COVID through through statistical modelling. And I was wondering if you could, yeah, talk for a couple of minutes about the 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 I guess the story of your your pandemic from an academic point of view, or not not necessarily academic, but a research point of view it's been busy i think that's my uh
1: my uh kind of number one kind of emotion or uh looking back i remember at the start you know obviously it was a terrible kind of situation but i actually thought i'd probably get a lot of reading done because you know things were kind of closing down but you know it turned to be far far away from that so, so
0: wishful wishful thinking sorry I yeah just...
1: <laughs> it was it was very wishful uh thinking so we got we got involved early on in kind of two major applications through the Turin Institute. One was a project called the COVID, which was looking to pull together electronic health records from secondary care hospitals two major hospital trusts, NHS hospital trusts, integrate the data using a common data dictionary, something called OMOP, and then do almost real time kind of analytics. That was the goal at the time. And so that involved a huge amount of kind of setting up getting the information governance right the trusted research environment etc and all all the data wrangling so alongside that we also had a request from nhsx to come and help on the nhs app Mm. which is being launched about this kind of digital contact tracing and what were the kind of inference issues and so was running those two kind of things you know in parallel and with very, in some sense, with very different outcomes, that the, the COVID project proved to be much more challenging than we expected. We had a target to bring data together to start being able to uh, to do statistics, statistical inference on that. The target was about three months. I think it took us eleven months or so to actually integrate that data. On the NHS X side, that moved at speed and we wrote the algorithms to, in order to work out the distances effectively uh, we were both helping on the inference what do you do when you get the, the data and how should you set thresholds uh, but also you know how can you calculate the distance between two mobile phones that are pinging bluetooth signal so yeah it was an interesting it was an interesting time but the, the issue at the beginning and our, there's a great um, piece, article I read in The the Atlantic, which is, a you know, obviously a US newspaper on the fog of the pandemic. It was called, cool. And it was about, you know, it was analogies with the fog of war, which mm-hmm. is that, you know, the data was just, you know, was patchy and trying to get an understanding of what was happening on the ground was incredibly difficult. But, you know, we're now kind of got there in the end, but it did take time.
0: Yeah, th- th- I think it's been interesting. I guess I've, I've been uh, w- working with you on, on 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 some of these projects and so something which has struck me is the kind of the difference in pace of work between, I guess, th- doing statistical modelling to analyse COVID data as opposed to kind of purely academic research. And, and it does mean you don't, you'd have to, in a sense, you have to, it's not really cutting corners, but you have to make decisions based on, I guess, less data that you would normally be Happy to make decisions on, and I think I think there's some, some I guess some interesting work coming from the the Turing uh, RSS lab on on inter- interoperability and and how we can kind of create these new model models at speed. It's interesting. Do you see do you see these ideas kind of becoming more mainstream, or do you think they're any kind of appropriate in the in the context of of uh, you know a pandemic? Yeah,
1: thank you. I think you know you're. You're absolutely right. And I take my hat off to, you know, the analysts who are really working at the front line in UK HSA, it was the JBC Joint Biosecurity Centre at the time, were having to answer, provide analysis to ministers with like a turnaround of like a day or, or two days for really important decisions. And uh, and that's incredibly challenging because you've got a deadline and that, that's unusual for academics, you know, to say normally, you know, our research just runs the pace that it runs. And then once it's, you know, packaged and we're happy with it and careful and checked, we put it out. But, but here they were asked a very fast turnaround. Turing in a collaboration with the Royal Statistical Society, as you know, because you're a member of this is the uh, set up a research lab embedded within UK HSA health security agency as it now is um, where we were onboarded onto their systems which was great because we got all the data that they had again different to the kind of usual academic cadence of you know months possibly years you know how can we turn things around in weeks uh, and, and try and bring some statistical rigor and innovation to the analysis and it struck me. I mean, this is a well-known phrase, but it was something that Peter Donnelly kind of used to say as well about the great being the enemy of the good, mm. which is, of course, there's a perfect statistical analysis or near perfect out there that you would like to do. You just simply don't have the time and you have diminishing returns because one striking feature of the pandemic was how quickly the questions changed, uh, which is how this notion of interoperability Is The UK HSA were asking us questions and by the time we'd solved them the questions had moved on they were like no no we don't need to know about that what we really want to understand is this new variant that's sweeping through or uh, you know what's the effect of schools opening up and what we found in the lab is this idea that we were almost chasing our tails so it gave us a chance to kind of step back a little bit and say what are the principles here and the principles are you're asking lots of questions of the same process. There's a single process, the pandemic, and there's lots of statistical questions being asked of that process. And and so that got us thinking about how can we improve interoperability and the kind of recyclability, if that's a word, yeah. of our models. Yeah, you know, what are the common data formats that are going into these models? You know, and there was data coming out of test and trace, data coming out of, you know, wastewater. Uh, and then of the hospital records, and so let's try and standardize the data feeds. think about the core components of the statistical models that we're building, and try and build kind of recyclable components of analysis that can be integrated in a probabilistic framework. So that was that was how the kind of notion of interoperability kind of came about.
0: No, I think it's it's really interesting and in, and in, in important work. I think at the, there's a, a, a preprint out on archive, which uh, we can stick in the in the podcast yeah. notes, uh, for people to have a look if they're interested in learning more. Um, I think we're out of time, sadly. Thank you so much for for taking the time to chat today, Chris. It's been it's been honestly fascinating. I know your your group has a a, a brand-spanking new website at www.chrishomeslab.com. There's just a a plug for you there. Is that the best place to um for for people to kind of read more about your research? We point them into anywhere else? Or is that is that the right? Place? Yeah.
1: I guess I'm very, I'm not very good at the kind of uh, uh, that aspect. Uh, yeah, that or Google Scholar.
0: Okay. Okay. So yeah, I will, we'll add that into the to the meeting notes as well. Great. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll stop there. Uh, thank you so much, Chris. And uh, thank you to everyone for, for listening. See you next time. My pleasure. Thank
1: you. UCR Minds brings together the knowledge, insights and ideas of our community through a wide range of events and activities that are open to everyone.